after Randy was married, he used to call me all the time and say, Greg, my wife is so strange, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, Randy, I'm a very wise person, but even I can't fathom the depth of <laughs> So there are some things we just have to pray about, I guess. Sorry, Randy. Elijah back, and um, 
we saw 500 people get killed and another 500 people get killed. And Elijah says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you soon to find out whether you're going to live or die from Baal? And anyway, Ahaziah died because Elijah said he was going to because God told Elijah that. Anyway, he only ruled a little over a year, and then his brother became king, and his brother was Jehoram. And this is who we're talking about right now. Verse 2, again, reads, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Jehoram was an evil king, but evidently not quite as wicked as Ahab. He actually destroyed a statue of Baal, that his father had made. And this actually seems pretty um, bold because at the time Jezebel, his mother, who was the queen mother now, was still alive. And we know how wicked she was. She's the one that instituted Baal worship in Israel to begin with. Anyway, he destroyed the statue of Baal. Now, maybe he did it because he was getting a little away from Baal worship, more probably. He was frightened because he remembered what had happened to his father and to his brother because <coughs> of their Baal worship and how this offended the living God. So the fright element probably was a big factor here. Or maybe he wanted to impress the king of Judah because he's getting ready to ask for an alliance with Judah, and the king of Judah is a godly king, and Baal worship is an abomination to him. At any rate, that's what he did. Whatever the reason, the Bible says he still did evil in the sight of the Lord. And verse 3, again, reads, Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which, made, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So what in the world are the sins of Jeroboam? Why was this so important? If you remember, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel after it was divided. And Jeroboam did not want his people to go back to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple because he knew that if they did, they would probably abandon him and go back and that his kingdom would be in dire straits. So what he did was create two places of worship, Dan in the northern part of Israel, and um, what was the other one? Bethel in the southern part. And in each of those two places, he made a golden calf and he said, these are your gods, O Israel, that delivered you. And so the people would go to these two places rather than go back to Jerusalem to worship. And then we get to Moab. And Moab had been subject to Israel for some time, many, many years. 
And then they broke away. They decided to rebel when Ahab died because Ahab was, even though he was quite an evil king, evidently he was a, a good ruler, very wise as far as what he did and strong. They actually decided to rebel when Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king. He only was alive for a little over a year, and evidently he was too weak to do anything about it. But now Ahaziah is dead, Jeroboam, excuse me, Jehoram is king, and Jehoram is not going to put up with this rebellion anymore. So he begins to get an alliance together to go and bring Moab back into the fold to get his annual tribute. This is sort of what's going on right here. And if we read the next two verses, or the next three verses, 7 through 9, it says, Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go well. I am with you. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they made a circuit of seven days journey. And there was no water for the army for the cattle that followed them. Jehoram wants allies in his fight against Moab. And so he asked the king of Judah to join him. Now Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, is a godly king. And yet he quickly agrees to unite with this pagan king of the northern kingdom in his fight against Moab. Notice that there is no mention of him asking God whether he should do this or not. In fact, this is Jehoshaphat's third cooperation, his third venture with Israel. And the first two didn't end up so well. Jehoshaphat allied himself the first time with Ahab of Israel against Syria. He barely escaped with his life, and Ahab was killed. And when he went back to Jerusalem, this is the message that he got. This is out of Second <coughs> Chronicles. Jehu, the son of Hanani, the prophet, went out to meet him, Jehoshaphat and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? When I get to be dictator, this is the plaque I'm going to have in front of my desk. <laughs> Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath upon yourself from the Lord? That's a good thing to remember. You're going to love the wicked and hate the godly. 
those things that love the Lord. And then later, Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahaziah, Ahab's son. In a shipbuilding venture, and that venture got a rebuke also from the Lord. Scripture says again in Second Chronicles, then Eleazar the son of Dodahi, excuse me, Dodavahi of Marashath prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your work. For the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. So twice he allied himself with the kings of Israel. Twice the Lord has rebuked him. And evidently he doesn't learn. Because now he's doing it the third time. <coughs> Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are. My people as your people. My houses as your houses. Much from learning to past experiences. So an alliance is formed between Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. Now, Edom is a country that is under the subjection of the southern kingdom of Judah. It's a vassal state. The king of Edom is propped up by the king of Judah. So, they decide, when they decide to go through Edom to attack Moab, it's only natural that Edom's forces will go with it. The Moabites live on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And the northern part of their country abuts the northern kingdom. And it's heavily fortified. So instead of going to Moab, they decide they're going to go around to the southern part and attack that way, where the fortifications are not so heavy. The only problem is the desolate area. They go up through Edom to a desolate area to attack Moab from the rear. And they run out of water. So they're in desperate straits because they had a journey of about seven days with their army and their cattle. And now they're thirsty, and they're thirsty to a desperate point. Verses 2 through 14. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, excuse me, one of the kings, and one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. Will you supply water on the hands of Elisha? Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you 
like the sound. Sorry? Do you like the sound of that? I do. <laughs> yes is yes, is no is no. <laughs> the water's gone, the situation's desperate. And the king of Israel, who's the one that called for the invasion to begin with, says the Lord is to blame for this situation. So Jehoshaphat finally decides to seek a word from the Lord. So, one of the servants of the king of Israel, and that's sort of weird because here's a servant of the king of Israel, the pagan king, who says, Elisha's here. Nobody from the southern kingdom says anything about it. But anyway, he says, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That means he was Elijah's personal servant. He was Elijah's right-hand man. It's telling that the scripture in verse 12 says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, to Elisha. Normally, kings don't do that. They demand that you come to them. They don't go to you. But in this case, all three kings go to see Elisha. And Elisha is just like Elijah. He doesn't care about your status. He says exactly what the Lord tells him to say. And he's not afraid to do it. He speaks plainly and only what God says. And he tells the king of Israel that he doesn't want anything to do with him. He says to him to go consult the prophets of Baal, the prophets of your mother and father. And Jehoram's response, he again blames God for the situation that they're in. So Elisha lets him know that the only reason he's even bothered to speak to him at all is because he regards the presence of the godly king Jehoshaphat. So if Jehoshaphat wasn't there, I wouldn't even be talking to you. And then verse 15. <coughs> Elisha speaks and he says, But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is the only time that the Bible says music was connected with a prophet's reception of a divine revelation. The only time. Now, it doesn't mean that music's not important, because obviously it is, and we see it many times in Scripture. But only in this case do we get a divine revelation connected with music. Because in 1 Samuel 16, 23, it tells us that there was an evil spirit of God came to Saul. David would take the harp and play it with his hands, and Saul would be refreshed and be well. And the evil spirit would depart from him. Second Chronicles 20 says, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambush against their enemies so their enemies were smitten. And again in Second Chronicles, when the music, musicians and singers 
he came as one and praising and thanking the Lord. It says, the house of the Lord became filled with a cloud so that the priest could not even stand and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Paul and Silas prayed. They sang praises to God in the Philippian jail. There was a giant earthquake. The cell door opened. The chain fell off. It seems as though Jesus quieted Elisha so that he could better hear the word of the Lord. And you can understand why he might need to be quieted in the presence of a king he didn't even want to speak to, didn't even, didn't even want to be around. Verses 16 through 20. says the Lord, <clears throat> you shall not see the wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley will be filled with water so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in the morning about the time of offering, the offering the sacrifice, that behold, the water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. says he's going to provide water, but you're not going to see the wind and you're not going to see the rain. Your part is to dig ditches. In the valley that you're in, in the wadi, in the desert area, sort of a, a, a dry riverbed, your part is to dig ditches, dig trenches. They have to dig ditches because when the water comes, they're going to be pools of water for them to drink and the animals to drink. They don't know this. God just says through the prophet, dig ditches, dig trenches. Don't just dig a few, fill <coughs> the valley with them. God says to make so many of them that you can hardly Imagine these people have been marching for seven days. They're very thirsty to the point of their animals dying. And God says, spend the night digging trenches in this valley. And they don't, they don't argue, they obey. Elisha says, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. You know, we think miracles are a big thing. And to us, they are. But to God, they're a light thing. You know, it was easy for God to create the heavens and the earth. 
It was easy for God to provide for 2 million plus people for 40 years in the desert. It was easy for God to raise the Lord Jesus from the dead. It was an easy thing, or it will be an easy thing for God to create a new heaven and a new earth. Number one, it's going to be an easy thing for God to completely destroy forever and crush Satan and all of his demon spirits. It's a light thing for God to do something like this. And by the way, in addition to providing the water, God's going to deliver Moab, Moab into your hands. Evidently, the water came through a flash flood from the northern part down. And this was not an uncommon occurrence. The rains would happen in the mountains, and they would flow down through these valleys, through these dry wadis, these dry riverbeds. And it would come so quickly and so violently that anybody in that in the riverbed at the time could be washed away. So the miracle not only is the water, the miracle is the timing. And here comes the water. <coughs> so the next morning, Moab looks out from their fortified position and they see the valley full of water actually full of the trenches. And all these trenches are full of water. And they look down and they see the sun shining on the water, the red soil, the red stones, and it appears to them like there's blood flowing everywhere. And they see the armies moving around, probably trying to get out of the way of the water, and they take this as the armies fighting among themselves. So they see the armies fighting among themselves. They see the redness and they think it's blood. And they think, this is going to be a smash. <coughs> We're going to go down and take care of this. 21 through 23. Now all the Moabites heard that the king had come up to fight against them. And all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. And they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together, and they have slain one another. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. they destroyed the cities. Excuse me, verse 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites so that they fled before them. And they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. They miscalculate badly. When they arrive, Israel rises up slaughter begins. 
Moab pleased, and Israel actually engages in what you might call a scorched earth policy. They throw stones on all the ground, they mess up all the wells, they cut down the fruit trees, there's nothing left except the capital city. And then verse 26 and 27. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, the crown prince, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. kings laid siege against the capital city of Moab. The king tried to break through, probably it says to tried to break through to Edom, probably tried to break through the ranks that Edom, what section they were guarding because it was considered, considered to be the weakest link that they couldn't get through. So finally in desperation, the king of Moab sacrifices his eldest son as a burnt offering to his idol god, Timon. And he does this on the city wall in an effort to appease Timon when he is taken. And evidently this is a sight of all the surrounding armies. He does this not only to honor his pagan god, but to show his own people his determination to prevent defeat. And scripture says that a great wrath came upon Israel. It's a hard phrase to interpret or explain. It certainly doesn't mean that Chemosh, this pagan god, had any power or any capacity to bring a punishment on Israel. The most natural explanation is that the sacrifice so inspired the Moabites that they began to fight with an increased fierceness, a fury that they'd never had before. And this sacrifice probably had a great effect on the Edomites that were also pagan. Israel, as you recall at the time, was mainly filled with Baal worshippers. And some of the people in Judah would not have been godly people either. So they see this going on, a sacrifice to this idol god, their idol worshippers themselves, and it creates a great, what's the word, consternation, a great confusion among their ranks. So it could have even invoked a great disgust among the Israelites seeing something like this. Whatever the reason, whatever the right explanation is, Israel withdrew and they went home content 
where they're almost complete victories. Amen with me? We don't have any understanding of how pagan these places were. You know, in the book of Leviticus, in the 18th chapter of Leviticus, it contains the phrase many times, you shall not. You shall not. Over and over. And it's in reference to immoral acts of all kinds, including homosexuality, bestiality, child sacrifice. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. It says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon you. So the land has vomited out its inhabitants. Doctor, this is why I'm getting rid of these people that belong to the land that you're getting to go in. They've defiled themselves, they've defiled the land. And the land's going to vomit them out and spew them out. That's what it says in Leviticus 18. You shall not, you shall not. And then you go to chapter 19 of Leviticus, and it's filled with the phrase, you shall. You shall, you shall. It says, you shall be holy. You shall revere your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall keep my statutes. And then in chapter 20 of Leviticus, it tells the punishment for disobeying the you shall and for doing the you shall not. And it lists the punishment for human sacrifice, for consulting mediums, for sexual immorality of all kinds. And the penalties range from barrenness to banishment to death. God had brought Israel out of Egypt where all of these immoral acts were normal. They happened all the time. And they had been in Israel for 400, I mean Egypt for 400 years. And they'd seen these things practiced over and over again. And now God prepared in Leviticus to lead them into the promised land where these immoral activities are even more prominent than they were in <coughs> Egypt. Israel called to be different. That's why the central theme of Leviticus is you are to be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart in the people to be mine. The central theme. I'm holy, you be holy. God's laws are given to prevent Israel from adapting or adopting the various ungodly sexual practices of the Canaanites. Because such practices defile God's people and they pollute the land. And Israel is to keep God's laws or they're going to defile the land just like the Canaanites would. And if they do, the land's going to cast them out just like it did the Canaanites. Exactly what happened. About 125 years after this battle against Moab, 
dependent of this is ever born in kingdom, fall to the invading Assyrians. Why? Because they had defiled themselves with Baal worship and with all kinds of sexual depravity. They defiled themselves and they defiled the land. And the land spit them out just like the Lord had said. God said, you be holy because I'm holy. I didn't think the law was telling us to do that. And he's telling us that if we defile ourselves, that we defile the land we're living in too. And what's going to happen? It's going to spit us out. Because God's character has not changed. And I think that's why we need to be in so much prayer both for ourselves and for the country and for the people all around us. Because God is God. And the change is not. so many times that <coughs> when the cloud came down it surrounded the tent of meeting and the cloud filled the, the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and I know that uh, today Lord the spirit of God dwells in each of your people and I pray that the glory of the Lord would fill us so that um, we are aware of who we are and who you are. And that we might honor you that uh, we might be holy for you are holy. I pray that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness, Lord, that, that the way we walk would please you and that you would Lord, just watch over us and hold us close to yourself. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. No, we're going to have communion. Oh, okay.